Good morning. Welcome to our Lord's. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, God is good and I'm glad you're here. It's true, isn't it? Here we're a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus and we kind of like to worship, don't we? Man, that is good. That's grateful to our worship team. So we're in part eight of our series on the Apostles' Creed. Eight, can you believe it? We've been looking at our deep roots, been looking at the Apostles' Creed, kind of like a battle cry, a biblical battle cry with all the tenets of the faith. Next week, Colt's gonna wrap up this series and launch us into Advent. Can you believe Advent's here? Next week will be the first week. And so during Advent, we'll be having a number of scripture readings and I've actually asked some folks to give homilies, Advent homilies. So we're gonna change it up a little bit during the Advent season and we're gonna have extended worship and some scripture readings and then a brief homily on a text about Christmas, about the coming of the Lord Jesus. Because around here we like to go deep into the Word of God, don't we? We like to go into the truth of Scripture and have it burn in our hearts, like Luke 24 talks about. Jesus is speaking with the disciples, and we want to be a community of the burning heart. We want the words of Scripture, the truth of the Word of God, burning inside of us. And we're learning that we can fuel that and cultivate it and stoke it during the week. And this Apostles' Creed, for those of you maybe who are dropping in, we've been looking at a creed that's been used for 1,800 years in the church. And really the essence of the creed is faith in God the Father, faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus, and faith in the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to look at forgiveness because we believe in forgiveness. We sing about it. We have gracious, merciful, free forgiveness from the Father through the Son to us. And we're going to look into that. But I want to do something a little bit different here this morning before we look at this phrase that we believe in the forgiveness of sins that comes to us through Christ. I want to do something that I haven't done before here. And I agree with John Wesley. We're people of one book, aren't we? So we're people of one book. This, if the limited time that we have, we want to spend as much time in the Word of God. We want to be people of one book. And there's so many different books out there to read all the time. And I have found that if I start looking into all of those books, that I'm not spending time in the book. And so I want you to hear, I want to be clear this morning, I'm not going to be recommending a lot of different books. This is the book we give ourselves to. But this morning, I actually want to recommend a book. First time in three years, I've recommended a book. And I am, it, if I had hair, my hair would be on fire as I read it. It is a word for the church for this hour. And so I want to take a few minutes to let you know why I think that. And I've got four copies out there for the first four people that want to go out and get it. You can buy it on Amazon. We'll have a slide up here if you'll put it up here. The book is called Live Not by Lies. It's by a gentleman named Rod Dreher. And this book is uh, incredibly timely. 
And as I was reading it, I thought of First, uh, First Chronicles 12.32, and listen to what it says, First Chronicles 12.32. It's talking about those who joined King David in battle, and it said that there were people from Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. And this book, I think, is one of those books that understands the times in which we live, and it suggests some things for Christians to do. It's incredibly practical. It's uh, a tough read in certain places. Like any and all books, it's like fish. There's some bones, you spit them out. There is no book other than this book that has 100% truth. So even as I recommend this book, have your discernment up and spit out the bones, whatever you run into along the way. Now I will say, it is alarming. He is sounding an alarm to the church. And so if you look to him and say, wow, I wish you were more balanced and moderate, and would you have told Isaiah or Jeremiah, hey, Jeremiah, I need you to quit weeping so much. Would you tone it down a little bit, Prophet Jeremiah? No, I think it's a prophetic word, and so sometimes prophetic people are pretty alarmed. And so he admits in the opening pages, I am sounding an alarm, and I want the church to hear because I see some things coming, and I want us to be ready, and I want us to be prepared. And so I want us to take a few minutes here and look at this book, Live Not by Lies. He gets the title from someone that I've been mentioning, a Russian Christian named Solzhenitsyn. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote an essay in 1974 and he was warning the Christian church in Russia and Eastern Europe, and he was saying, live not by lies. And it's a prophetic essay. You can look at it online if you want, but he titles his book after that 1974 essay. And in Dreher's book, I just want to point out three quick things, and then we're going to, actually, it's not quick. I'm going to take half my time this morning to do that. I'm going to point out three things, and then we're going to end by looking at the phrase on forgiveness. But three things I want to point out in this book, and the first is he points out striking parallels in our American context to pre-communist Russia. A second thing he does is he looks at what he calls a soft totalitarianism, a form of government that wants to come in and take root. And then thirdly, and this is where the book gets really good, he talks about Christian resistance. How do we, as Christians, anchor ourselves in the Word of God, the truths of the creed, and resist this as it comes in? So as he looks at some of these striking parallels to pre-communist Russia, he lets you know through the book he's doing historical research, he's looking at Russian history, he's consulting historians, but he also interviews a number of Christians who lived in Russia and other parts of Eastern Europe, so he has firsthand experience and firsthand knowledge coming from them. And he said that they agree, many of them live in the American context now, and they are looking around and they're alarmed. They've lived through it. They know it firsthand. They know what it looks like. They know what it smells like. Some of the people he interviewed were in gulags in Russian prisons. So these folks know what they're talking about. And some of the things that they talked with him about were mass surveillance, 
things that they saw creeping into their country. Police state activity growing. Aggressive propaganda to the point of brainwashing. Pressure for businesses and individuals in the Russian context to post various signs endorsing things that they didn't agree with. Why? To go along to get along, just to be left alone and stay open. They had to post signs out front of their business like workers of the world unite, some of these communistic slogans, and they didn't even believe it. So he shares some of these things in these pages. And again, I urge you to, to get this book or to listen to it on audio. If you think, ah, I'm just not going to read a couple hundred pages, get it on audio, listen to it. You could have someone, you could read it to one another. Another thing he does early on in the book is he's talking about parallels as he reviews Russian history. Now, I would say this. There are times when you read what he's saying and it's compelling. And you say, this is just on target. It's almost undeniable. There are other places where you may scratch your head a little bit and say, well, I'm not sure. Maybe that's a stretch. That's for you to look into, for you to read and see. But this is to quote him. He says, the history of Russia on the verge of left-wing revolution is more relevant to contemporary America than most of us realize. Some of you are saying, where's the door? <laughs> but I think many of you are resonating with me. Are you? You hear something like this and it resonates in your guts, in your knower, in your truth teller and truth discerner. Some of the parallels he points out in his book here that parallel our moment with the Russian moment a hundred years ago. He said that one thing that troubled him was that the Russian church had ongoing calls to reform itself to prepare for the priests to get things together, and they didn't. That troubles him as he reads Russian history and sees this in interviews. Another parallel, and again, I'm just giving you a couple little samples here. He said that the intellectual and creative people in Russia were mesmerized. They got hypnotized by the idea that human beings have godlike abilities to lead the world into a march of progress. Sound familiar? And they had a naive confidence that humanity can do these things apart from God. We'll get into this in a minute. The other thing, there was a highly theoretical movement devised by Karl Marx that took these people, the Russian intellectuals and creatives, by storm. Some of the things that were featured in Karl Marx's ideology, hatred for religion, that's one. Friends, Karl Marx loathed religion, especially Christianity. He wanted to eradicate it. He saw it as a weed in the garden of Russia and he wanted to pluck it out and replace it with something else. He called Christianity the opium or the drug of the Russian people that kept them down and kept them numb. He wanted to eradicate it. A second thing that Marx preached was that revolution would tear control from the rich people in the name of the workers and establish an all-powerful government that would redistribute the resources fairly. Sound familiar? 
Yes. Thirdly, again, so many things we could look at, but I'm just trying to whet your appetite here. Marx believed that his ideas were all based in science. He kept saying over and over again in his writings, this is scientific, this is science, this is science. And for him, science supplants God from the picture. Science becomes the new God. So what do you listen to? Not God, not tradition, not the church, but the God of science. Sound familiar? So again, you'll have to read and listen to the book to see if you find it compelling. But I wanna point out one other thing here as he talks about, he compares the Russian situation. He calls that hard totalitarianism and he likens it to a boot, a big jack boot on your neck. And he said, friends, as I look at the parallels, this is not a jack boot on your neck. He calls it soft totalitarianism. It's more like a surgeon's scalpel than a boot. And he said, but it's still here and it's creeping up on us. Dreher, because he loves the church, he's actually an Eastern Orthodox person. He was an evangelical, he became Eastern Orthodox, but he loves the whole church. And he realizes in this moment, we have to unite in ways around the truth of scripture. And so he quotes from evangelical Protestant Christians, he quotes from Orthodox Christians, and he actually quotes from the previous Pope, Pope Benedict the 16th. And listen to what he says. He says that he agrees with what this Pope said 15 years ago, that there is an aggressive and profoundly anti-Christian militancy that wants to overtake society. It's a worldwide dictatorship of seemingly humanistic Marxist ideologies that push dissenters to the margins. Benedict called this a manifestation of the spiritual power of the Antichrist. A power that materializes and expresses itself in rogue government, private institutions, corporations, academia, media, and in the practices of everyday American life. It's empowered by unprecedented technological capabilities to surveil or watch, snoop on all private life, and there's nowhere to hide. Again, I know this is heavy, but it's a book that rings with truth. And again, I just, as a pastor, have got to stand up in a moment like this and say, friends, we're the army of the Lord. We gotta wake up. We gotta prepare. Maybe the Lord in his mercy will come in like a flood and turn the tide. Regardless, it's, we need to wake up and be prepared and press in through fasting and prayer and going deep in the scriptures and evangelism, amen? So he also says this about soft totalitarianism. He says that it includes something therapeutic. Now listen here. He calls it not only a soft totalitarianism, but he says it's therapeutic. What does he mean by that? Listen to what he says. He says that this therapeutic regime masks its hatred of dissenters in the guise of helping and healing. Do this, act this way, in accord with our strict ideology, 
because we're helping and healing and unifying you. Unfortunately, and I know this because I was on college campuses for 12 years, this kind of soft therapeutic totalitarianism has been shaping the minds of students for decades, 30 years in particular. And it's influencing, the influence is coming from professors who've given themselves over to Marxist socialist ideology. And the students go to college and learn to toe the line, stand in line, toe that line, comply with what is politically correct, learn our doctrines, and give allegiance to our progressive beliefs. And they come through college, sometimes not even learning liberal arts and free thinking, but to toe the line. And friends, Dreher points this out. He says, some of the doctrines that come through this do not make sense. He gives some examples. Men have periods. The woman standing in front of you is to be called he. Diversity and inclusion means excluding those who object to their ideology. He points out this is reinforced by an aggressive media that preaches openness and unity while at the same time muting their opponents. This contradicts logic and it violates the spirit of our First Amendment. We have freedom of speech. The First Amendment guards freedom of religion and it guards freedom of speech. And so Dreher is putting his finger on that and saying, it doesn't make sense. And then he goes on to say, many of you have probably heard references recently to George Orwell's book, 1984, when he, Orwell explained in his book, in his novel, that there would be a time when there was something called new speak. It was Big Brother, the totalitarian totalitarian government's subversion of normal language to control the population and submit to the party. And Dreher says, we're seeing that. Not only new speak, new forms of language that don't make sense, but double think. Holding two contradictory beliefs in mind and accepting both. And Orwell says, a time will come when the party, when Big Brother says two plus two equals five. And everyone's supposed to line up and say, that's right, two plus two equals five. And he says, this is double think. And if you don't agree, you'll be silenced and you'll be labeled a disinformation purveyor. Friends, I think Dreher's book is prophetic. I think Orwell was onto something. Dreher also mentions Aldous Huxley's book, Brave New World. And he says, I think we're seeing the Brave New World trying to emerge. And in that book, there's an informal agreement between the people, the populace, and the government. And the people basically agree to surrender all of their political rights in exchange for personal guarantees of pleasure and protection. Dreher calls this a pink police state. 
It's nice and happy looking, but at the same time, it's surveilling the people, controlling all the media, and excluding all dissenters from all platforms of communication. How are we doing? We okay? Truth is first and foremost found in the word of God, is it not? But then the Lord raises up voices that speak the truth rooted in the word of God, and I think this is one of those folks here. Dreher says that where therapeutic totalitarian government is in charge, it seeks to dominate, and the great sin is to stand in the way of the freedom of others to find happiness as they wish. So friends, I think he gives a really discerning, mostly compelling analysis of where we are. But the book is hopeful. You want some hope? Some joy? He says, I'm working through the book to get to this place to talk about what the church should be and do. And then there's an infusion of hope and joy and confidence in the Almighty God. And he looks at particular people a hundred years ago in Russia and Eastern Europe, and he says, some of these folks were like the sons of Issachar. They saw what was coming, and they prepared. And he looks at one Catholic priest named Father Kolakovich. Father Kolakovich. We'll call him Father K, all right? And he said, this man, in his early 30s, saw what was on the horizon with prophetic insight and called the people to prepare. Listen to what Father Kay said. Give yourself totally to Christ. Throw all your worries and desires on him, and you will witness miracles. So Father Kay said that 100 years ago, and he began to network with other leaders all over Slovakia, all over Eastern Europe, and establish cells, groups, small gatherings of people, especially young people, to come together for prayer, Bible study, fellowship, and evangelism. Sound familiar? Acts 2.42, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, making disciples. So Father Kay began to do this, and he had a motto that they began to recite and learn as those small groups were meeting in that critical, pivotal moment. And it was see, judge, act. See, judge, act. What did Father Kay mean by this? As he called the church to prepare, he said, see is to be awake to the realities around you. See it, be awake. He said, judge. That means to discern soberly the meaning of the realities that are going on around you. See, judge, or discern, and then what did he mean by act? After you discern, you're to act to resist evil. Based on the truth of Scripture, you resist, you act. What would Christ have me do? What would Christ have the church do? So these are what I think are concrete and constructive takeaways 
from the book. This is, again, just a little sample. He's interviewing many people, learning many things from history, and calling the church, basically, in the end, to recognize the power that God has given us through Christian community, through worship, through discipleship. Dreher also says, recognize and rediscover the power of family. It's the core cell of opposition, is what Dreher says. The family unit, man and woman together, with their children, if they choose to have children, become the core cell of opposition against crazy governments. And thirdly, he talks about a willingness to suffer with and for Jesus. Just as Father Kay did, just as the Apostle Paul did, just as Christ and the disciples did, through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. And so friends, we have to think about this, not because Dreher says it, because scripture says it. Scripture tells us if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. You will suffer. Now, if that doesn't happen, then that's an exception. But Scripture says that we should prepare ourselves to suffer. It is the Word of God. And again, Father Kay and the other people you're looking at, they were joyful in God. They realized we are made for this moment right here. And God's going to give us all that we need and more to be filled with joy, to be filled with worship, to be filled with unstoppable fire. And so, friends, this is a sobering book. It's a sobering book. But we can be the happiest, most joyful, worshipful people on the planet. Where it gets tough and where the furnace gets turned up, the Lord shows up. So I'm expecting if things get tough, they get more difficult. We get a little taste of what oftentimes the rest of the world experiences, some persecution, and I'm not talking about someone saying something mean about you at work. I'm talking about real suffering. If that comes, then we can expect real grace and real power and real anointing, and like Father Kay said, expect to see miracles. Dreher ends the book with a quote. I want to end with this and then we're going to look briefly at forgiveness. He's quoting this Christian Solzhenitsyn. And listen to what Solzhenitsyn says. Everybody says that they have no choice but to conform. And again, think about it. He's writing this as he sees the communistic storm coming on the horizon. We have no choice but to conform and to accept powerlessness. But that is the lie that gives all the other lies their force. The ordinary man or woman may not be able to overturn the kingdom of lies, but they can at least say that they are not going to be its loyal subject. Live not by lies, live by the truth of God's word is the clarion call that comes through this book. Amen? So I appreciate that. If I get some emails of people that feathers are ruffled, I really don't expect that because I think we're all in this together, aren't we?
Is there great variety on political views that we embrace fully here at UBAT? This is a church, especially in the buckle of the Bible Belt, that we have great diversity and all, but we're going to stand for the truth. And we say over and over again, and he actually critiques both sides. He critiques the right, he critiques the left, and he points out what he thinks is true and what's not true. So this is not a politically aligned book. He's saying, let's align with the word of God. And that's how we want to roll here as well. We, want to, we are committed to someone who is the king over all this. And he is not a Republican. Jesus is not a Republican. Jesus is not a Democrat. Jesus is not a Libertarian. He's the Lord. And so we give our full allegiance to him, our body, our soul, our spirit, our money, our kids, all that we have is aligned with his party. Amen? So I am not subtly saying anything political other than let's be kingdom people. Because the truth is all these parties are going to come and go. All that's happening right now will blow over. And we'll probably have another iteration, another form of great controversy. It will come and go. The prophet Daniel promises that. And he said the only kingdom that comes and stays is the kingdom of God and his Messiah, the Christ. And it will actually pulverize all the others in love, in self-sacrifice, in forgiveness, in mercy. Amen? So on that note, I just want to take a few minutes. I knew that we just had one phrase to look at in the Apostles' Creed. I'm actually going to give you just a moment here. Take a breath. All right? I'm going to take a breath for about 15 seconds here. I'm going to get a swig of water. You can take a deep breath. You can look at the person next to you and stare at them or say something. I'm going to come back in 15 seconds. Actually, what I would like for us to do, can we stand? Let's stand. And I've got a slide with the Apostles' Creed on it. I want to say that. I just, if, if we're going to be people that live not by lies, but live by the truth of God's word, I want us to speak out the Apostles' Creed with some courage and to recognize that it is our biblical battle cry in this hour. Oh, wow, you can't read that, can you? <laughs> can you read that? Oh, wow, you have good vision. I'm looking at it, and it's a big blur. Tyler Glaze will say, come see me and get new glasses. So we do have uh, hand, uh, paper copies there at the back right here. If you need to grab one, we can say it together. And if you can see that, good for you. You got 20, 20 or close. So let's say the Apostles' Creed with some guts, with some courage, as Christian dissidents. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. 
He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen? All right, you can take a seat and let's look at that one phrase here. And again, if you're new joining us, we've talked about this multiple times, but when we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, believe in the Holy Catholic Church, it's little c. Catholic means universal, worldwide. It is not speaking about the Roman Catholic Church necessarily. It's the universal worldwide church for all time. So as we look at this phrase here, Believe in the Holy Spirit, and then a few lines down, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. There's two simple things I want to say here. And actually, this is really pertinent in looking at a book like we did here. The first thing I want us to think about is we receive forgiveness from the Father through the Son. We receive forgiveness from God. From the beginning, God wanted man and woman who were created in his image to walk closely with him and to be his emissaries, his leaders on the planet. And unfortunately, Adam and Eve, Joseph and Rock, you know about this story, right? Adam and Eve in the garden, that little slippery serpent comes in and whispers something to them, you can be like God. And unfortunately, Adam and Eve listened to the voice and they fell into sin and rebellion and fractured the relationship that they had with their creator. But the scriptures teach us, especially in Romans 5, that there's a new Adam that comes to the scene, Christ Jesus. And he obeyed God where Adam didn't, the first Adam. And he restored the human race through his obedience, through his atoning sacrifice and his resurrection from the dead. But the creed is telling us we have to appropriate, we have to lay hold of those things that Jesus did for us as the new Adam. Listen to what scripture says about appropriating this and about receiving forgiveness from God. I'm gonna quote from the Old Testament and the New Testament so that we see that God had a plan of forgiveness and restoration from the beginning. The prophet Daniel says this. He's praying to God in a crunch time moment. And he says, we and our kings are covered with shame. Lord, because we've sinned against you. But Daniel 9.9 says, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we've rebelled against him. So God is full of forgiveness. The vision of God in the Old Testament reveals that he was full of mercy, full of forgiveness. We find it in the prophet Daniel. We find it in the Psalms. Listen to Psalm 130, verse 3. The psalmist says this, and it's up on the screen if you want to see it or you can grab a pew Bible. If you, Lord, kept a record of sin, who could stand? Who could stand? Anybody stand if the Lord kept a record? I certainly would have a long record. The answer is no one. But with you, verse 4, there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. So there's the reality of sin, but there's the forgiveness that only God provides. 
So we look at the prophet, we look at the psalmist, then the apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 1.7 about forgiveness. Absolutely beautiful, stunning words here. Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. So Paul is telling us there that Christians are redeemed and rescued through the blood of Christ, through the forgiveness that comes freely through him to anyone that will open their heart up in faith. This is great news. This is part of why we're joyful. This is the essence of why we're joyful people and we can face the future with great courage. Christ has brought forgiveness to us. One last thing here. 1 John 1.8, as we receive forgiveness from the Father through the Son, 1 John 1.8 says this. Man, you should wear this out in your Bible right here. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Verse 9, this is good news. If we confess our sins... He who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, God is ready and quick to forgive and forgiveness flows freely from him through his son. A second thing here before we have some ministry time. We don't just receive it. We don't just say, Father, you love me. I receive your forgiveness the gift of grace through faith in your son. But I gotta share this with other people. It's not just for us. We're not cul-de-sacs of forgiveness. We're freeways where the forgiveness of God flows through us to fellow Christians, to those in the world around us, and even to our enemies. That's a hard word, isn't it? even in light of living not by lies. Jesus taught this, right? Jesus taught a kingdom principle in Matthew 10, 8. He said, freely you've received, freely give. And he's talking about prayer for the sick and healing and proclaiming the kingdom, but he's also talking about freely receiving forgiveness. Luke 6 says this, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. So friends, there's something innate in the gospel that tells us we receive it and we've got to give it. You got anyone in your life right now you need to forgive? I'm sure I'm not alone in here. Everyone can think of maybe one or two people. Is it work to forgive someone? Is it? Some of you are going, no, it's so easy. I'll meet and have coffee with you and you can pray for me. It's tough. Forgiveness can be tough. But here's the good news. We're empowered to forgive and show mercy. Ephesians 4, 32 says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Friends, you're forgiven. If you're a believer in Jesus, been baptized into his church, you put your faith in him, you're all in, you're forgiven. And he gives you the power to give that forgiveness to other people. I'm going to end with this verse right here. 
Matthew 5, 43. We're supposed to forgive everybody, and that can be rather ambiguous, right? Todd, go forgive. Bo, go forgive. But Jesus really makes it specific and concrete here. You're given so much love and so much mercy that you're supposed to share it with this group of people. Listen to Matthew 5, 43 and following. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do you hear that? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So friends, it may be in the coming days that we not only get to love one another, but we get to love our enemies. And this is the word of the Lord for us, that he's forgiven us, that he gives us abundant forgiveness and mercy for other people. So Lord, we ask, why don't we stand? Lord, we ask for a supernatural impartation of forgiveness today, that you would awaken our hearts to receive forgiveness from the Father through you, Jesus, today, and that supernaturally we would let go of unforgiveness toward other people, that we would freely love and forgive others, even our very enemies. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.